So last Sunday in the connection with the sermon on self-defense from Esther, I was promoting my book, Stand Your Ground, The Biblical Foundation for Self-Defense. And we ran out of books, so I got another case over here if anybody wanted one, but did not get the opportunity to get one. I found out later on in the third service, it wasn't this service, but in the next service, the third service, while I was talking about that book, somebody was Googling it on Amazon in the service. And they were kind of laughing because afterwards I found out the first thing that comes up when you see my book is one of the reviews and it's a very negative review. It's a one-star review, and it's awful. And so I think I wrote it like eight years ago. I hadn't, I hadn't been back there in a long time. So I went back, and I started looking at the reviews. In my defense, now there are 56 reviews of the book, and 53 are positive. They're five and four stars. There are three very negative reviews of the book, but in the interest of fairness and balance, I'm going to read to you from those. Uh, here they are. At least, this is not the whole reviews, but one says, this guy is a joke. SB, I cringed. NW, it's okay. The book is, but I wouldn't recommend it. KD, I mean, this hurts people, but... If you bought a book, no refunds on the book. I'm sorry, no refunds. But you know, I just noticed something about these initials, S-B-N-W-K-D. That wouldn't be Scott Blount, Nate Wilkerson, and Kent Drake, would it? <laughs> Come on, man. Okay, so when we last left Esther, the Jews had practiced self-defense, their God-given right to self-defense, overcame their enemies, and so now Mordecai says, it's time to celebrate. Chapter 9, verse 20. Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies. He wrote them to observe the days of days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So this is going to be the Feast of Purim, which the Jews still celebrate to this day. You know, the Bible says that we Christians are exiles as well, just like the Persians were exiles, or the Jews rather were exiles over there in Persia. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces. So we're exiles in the sense that our real homeland is heaven. It's not America. It's not Canada. It's not wherever we... That's our secondary citizenship. Primary citizenship is in heaven. So we are exiles. So I want to make an application from the Feast of Purim today. I've called it Party Like an Exile. And just three takeaways in which we can do that. The first one is to roll the Purim dice. Roll the Purim dice, Esther 9.24. For Haman had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast the pure, that is the lot, for their ruin and destruction. Therefore, these days were called Purim from the word for pure. And the pure there, the pur, depending on how you pronounce it, it's lot, it's like, cat. we would call it casting dice. Now, this is kind of a strange name for this festival when you think about it. First of all, this casting of the lots there was a very minor detail in the story. It only happened once, chapter 3. Uh, you could take that element of the story out and still maintain the entire storyline. Secondly, the reason that it happened is when Haman, the villain, gathered together the diviners in the kingdom to try to determine the proper day of slaughter for the Jews. So why would you name your celebration after the instrument that, determined, that was going to determine the annihilation of your people, the Jews? Good question. Not sure. Part of the answer, though, may be, and more of the overarching, the overall point that, part of the point that's made in the book is that the 
The destiny of God's people is not determined by someone like Haman casting lots before his so-called gods. So you remember God's name is not even mentioned in the book of Esther. So it might be tempting for succeeding generations of Jews to look at what happened and just chalk it up to good luck. Well, it was just their good luck that things happened in a serendipitous way, all of these coincidences. And it may be that Mordecai wanted to emphasize that through the casting of Purim, it was not up to Haman, it was actually up to God how things played out. God, the lot of God's people then and now is determined by God. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. And because that's true and we believe that, therefore, Proverbs 3, 5, Proverbs 3, 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. So when I talk about casting the Purim lot, what's the takeaway? We want to cast the Purim lot in the sense that we believe, this is the guiding belief of our life, that our destiny is not by chance, it's not random, it's not a bunch of serendipitous coincidences, that God is involved in the details, indeed in the weeds of our lives. He is imminently involved in them and determining them. Let me give you another example of this, the providential determination of God from the Old Testament. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 3. One day Kish's donkeys straight away, and Kish told Saul, his son Saul, take a servant with you, go look for the donkeys. Verse 15. Now the Lord had told Samuel the previous day, about this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. And when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said, that's the man I told you about. So Kish was just an Israelite in Old Testament Israel. He had two donkeys on his farm who wandered away and got lost. He turns to his grown son Saul, says, go find those donkeys. So Saul and the servant are out looking for the donkeys. All day long, they're going from village to village. Have you seen my father's donkeys? No. Have you seen my father's donkeys? No. Kind of reminded me of that old children's book. I don't know if you read this, a little birdies going along. Have you, are you my mother? No. Are you my mother? No. So they spent the whole day doing that. At the end of the day, they're exhausted. They haven't found the donkeys. The servant says, hey, you know, I think Samuel the prophet lives really close to here. Let's go visit him. He can ask God. Maybe he can help us find the donkeys. So they go to Samuel. And as they're approaching Samuel, God says to Samuel, this is the man I told you about yesterday when I said I'm going to send a man to you. Isn't it interesting how God sent Saul to Samuel? Now, he, didn't, he didn't appear to Saul in a vision or a dream and say, Saul, you need to go visit the prophet Samuel. He didn't send an angel to him. There was nothing supernatural or miraculous about it. It was something as mundane as, and simple as a farmer's donkeys wandering away and getting lost. As simple as that. And for God to direct our steps does not require him appearing to us in a vision or sending us an angel or something supernatural or miraculous. It's as simple and as easy as losing your keys. Uh, I wrote a Steve O'Devo about this and had sent it out a while back. And uh, 10 minutes after I sent it out, somebody who received it, responded, Steve, God's word is timely and perfect. It proved to be so 10 minutes after I received your devotional on God directing our steps. I'm in Miami. I had seven stops to make helping my mother deliver flowers for Mother's Day. 
My mom's a florist. On step, stop six, the address was wrong and we wasted 45 minutes. Stop seven was also wrong. At that point, I became quite aggravated, which I expressed aloud. As I entered the home of my last flower delivery, a Jewish man began having a heart attack. The wife immediately called 911. I asked if I could pray for him. He said yes. I prayed and tried to make him feel comfortable. I ran outside to help guide the police and paramedics. I comforted the wife and gave them a promised Bible and opened it up to the section on peace so they could read it later. And as I drove away, I was convicted of my sin of impatience. And I saw how God's timing, allowing me to get lost, enabled me to be a witness for Jesus Christ. To God be the glory. And Lord, I pray that I would have the wisdom in the future to see what God can do with my inconvenience. Don Camacho. Some of you know Don Camacho. So, taking away from the Feast of Purim, roll that Purim dice and recognize we're under the providential care and control of God. There's only two ways to roll the dice. We either roll the dice in favor of God's providence or we roll the dice in the idea that everything that happens to us is just chance, coincidence, and randomness. Number two. Uh, party like an exile. Feel the Purim spirit. Feel the Purim spirit. All right, verse 16. The Jews who were in the king's provinces assembled to protect themselves on the 13th day of the month. And on the 14th, they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. The Jews in Susa, however, had assembled on the 13th day and 14th. And then on the 15th day, they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. And you see what's happening here? Uh, there, are, there are two days in play. Out in the provinces of Persia, it only required one day for the Jews to overcome their enemies. And so they're feasting and celebrating the next day, which is the 14th. In the capital city of Susa, it, re it required two days for the Jews to overcome their enemies. So they're resting and celebrating on the 15th instead of the 14th. Now, Mordecai decides they don't want to celebrate this festival just one time. They want it to make it an annual celebration. So the logistical question becomes, do we celebrate on the 14th or on the 15th? Now, I can't prove this, but I have to believe that there were people who were lobbying Mordecai for both days. There were people from the provinces who were lobbying Mordecai. Let's make it the 14th. They would have been called the 14ers. There were people from inside Susa who were trying to pressure Mordecai to, to celebrate on the 15th. They would have been called the 15ers. And then there were other people like me who have the spiritual gift of indecision. They couldn't decide. They're called the in-betweeners. But what Mordecai decided to do is say, we're just going to celebrate on both days, the 14th and the 15th. And that was more than just a shrewd decision to appease all parties. It was part of the emphasis of Purim, which was an emphasis that the Jews were selling, celebrating together in unity, in oneness. They were delivered by the one God. They were delivered from the same threat, and they were going to celebrate this feast in unity and oneness, and that's part of the emphasis of Purim. Now, we today, we Christians, we party like exiles when we have the same emphasis on unity in the body of Christ. Unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2, Paul writes, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You know as well as I do, we serve a God, we worship a God, we follow a God 
who is very, very concerned and adamant about unity. I mean, one of the reasons that Jesus went to the cross, primary reason, was that we, his children, might be united back with God. Through the cross, he could break down the wall of hostility, and we could be at peace with God and united and one with God, just like Jesus is one with God. But also, so that we could be one and unified with the other children of God. He wants us to be unified with one another. That doesn't happen unless we are humble, humility, unless we are gentle, unless we are patient and forbearing and love one another, which means giving other people the benefit of the doubt. The spirit of Purim is the spirit of unity. It's a very important spirit. We've just come the last year or two through one of the most divisive times in our country that probably most of us can ever remember. Now, I, think this, I think our church does very good at this. I say kudos to our church for its emphasis on unity because we've come through and we've maintained the unity here. I mean, the whole mask issue, you got pro-mask, you got anti-mask, and there were maskers and anti-maskers in this congregation. Yet our leadership helped us and the Holy Spirit helped us to navigate that issue in humility and forbearance and gentleness and with respect, all people on all sides maintain our unity. Praise God for that. I mean, you have a preacher who preached four sermons on transgender And we didn't divide over that. Four sermons on homosexuality, four sermons on abortion, 104 sermons through the gospel of Matthew, and we all stayed together in unity. I think part of the reason for the unity, and I think there are are many reasons we could talk about. One's the Holy Spirit. We're all indwelled by the Holy Spirit, and that is the Spirit of God who wants us to be united and stay united. But also in our Discover class, any person who wants to become a member of this church comes and sits through Discover. And the very, of four sections, the first one I teach on is unity. How we maintain our unity here in the church. We're a restoration church, which means we go by the Bible. The Bible alone is our only rule of faith and practice. We will not divide over opinions, over traditions, over ecclesiastical authorities. In matters of faith, unity, and matters of opinion, what? Liberty, and in all things, love. Matters of faith, unity, opinion, liberty, and in all things, love. So we're, we're very intentional about going by the Word of God in matters of faith. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one church, one spirit, one body, right? But in matters of opinion, liberty. In disputable matters, we will not judge one another. And I'm kind of looking forward. Oh, I'm looking forward to this whole vaccine issue. You don't have to have the spirit of a prophet to kind of intuit. That's going to become a more divisive issue and not a less divisive issue. And just like the mask, we got vacciners and we got anti-vacciners and pro-vacciners, anti-vacciners. And those who are getting the vaccine believe that's the medically sound thing to do, prudent thing to do, loving thing to do, right in the midst of the will of God. And those who are not getting the vaccine believe exactly the same thing. That's a disputable matter. I don't see how you could have anything that falls into the definition more than that. Romans 14.1, Paul says, except the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. 
And whether you think it's the anti-vaxxers whose faith is weak or the vaxxers whose faith is weak, that doesn't matter. The point that matters is what matters most to God is not whether or not someone gets a vaccine. It's that we love our brothers and sisters. We will not divide. We will not judge someone else over something like that. We think the very best of them. We count others as more important than ourselves. And that's the attitude that we have towards one another. All right, like I said, enough lecturing. I know you believe this. I already said, I think we do well at this. Let's continue to remember that and feel the Purim spirit, which is the spirit of unity. And then finally, talking about how to party like an exile, the lessons were taken away from the Feast of Purim. Eat the Purim feast. We eat the Purim feast. Mordecai said, observe the days as days of feasting and joy. Now, it's very appropriate that they would observe this celebration through feasting. Do you realize that the story of Esther starts with two feasts? A feast in the capital city of Susa and a feast in the provinces of Persia. The story of Esther now, it's a bookend, is ending with two feasts. Feasts within Susa and a feast in the provinces of Persia. In fact, there are a number of feasts throughout this story. And they form kind of a skeleton for the story. It's a, it's a narrative format in which the first occasion corresponds to the last occasion of feasting. And the second occasion corresponds to the next to last. I'm going to put a slide up here. It's probably too small for you to read, but it is the outline of these feasts in the book of Esther. And just for example, A there. Letter A is the king's feast for officials of the empire. That's in chapter 1. And A prime at the bottom is the feast of Purim for the whole empire. Then B is the king's feast for the men of Susa. And B prime is the feast of Purim for Susa. C is the feast celebrating Esther's rise. C prime is the feast celebrating Mordecai's rise in chapter 8. And D is Esther's first feast for the king and Haman in chapter 5. And D prime is Esther's second feast for the king and Haman in chapter 7. We've seen this before. I talked about this two weeks ago. There is a word for this kind of a narrative format or scheme or skeleton. Does anybody, please help me, does anybody remember that word? We learned a new word, right? What was it? Please. <laughs> All right, I'm going to give it to you. Somebody may have said it. If you said it, come up to me afterwards. But uh, the word is chiasm. It's chi. Remember chiasm? C-H-I-A-S-M. Where everything is focused to, and where we saw it before, it was the king's insomnia. All right, so we have another chiasm here. But it's very, and somebody got it in the first service, by the way. So I've got to tell you. Um, it's very fitting. The sentiment seems to be, Haman is dead. We're alive. Let's eat. Amen is dead, we're alive, let's eat. They're not just eating, they're feasting, and they're eating with a purpose and a point. And the point is that God had delivered them, God had provided deliverance for them, and they're going to celebrate their God of deliverance. The 23rd Psalm, which almost everybody knows and most people love, has the line within it that says, He prepares a table before me in the presence of my what? My enemies. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. The, before you had the feasting, you had the fasting. 
And a lot of times, fasting is because a people or we are anxious or concerned, have anxiety about something that happened. And that is certainly true in Persia when they were fasting for three days before Esther went before the king to make her request to deliver the people. We see this, for instance, in Acts chapter 27. The Apostle Paul at that time is a prisoner, and he's on a ship bound for Rome where he has to appear before the emperor. Now, he's on, the, he's on board the ship, and there are soldiers and sailors, and they unwisely sail right through the middle of a hurricane. Well, it's not a hurricane. On that side of the world, it's called a typhoon. It spins in the other direction. They sail through this typhoon, and it's so rough that no, nobody has eaten any food for two weeks on the ship because they think they're going to die. And here's what Paul says in verse, Acts 27, 33. He says to them, the soldiers and the sailors, you've been so worried, you haven't touched food for two weeks. Please eat something now for your own good, for not a hair of your heads will perish. And then he took some bread. He gave thanks to God before them all. He broke off a piece and ate it. And then everyone was encouraged and began to eat all 276 on board. So they were so worried they weren't eating. They were fasting. And Paul says to them, I know there's a storm raging outside, but my God's in control. Let's eat. Uh, we sang a song this morning about our God comes and fights for us in the midst of the storm, and we trust in him. Was this the last time after the Jews overcame their enemies in Persia? Was that the last threat that they ever faced? Is that the last challenge that they had? Hardly. There's always another Haman standing in the wings. There's always another enemy, another threat, another challenge. And yet we still, we sit down, we look at each other across the table and said, Haman's dead, we're alive, let's eat. Our God has delivered us and provided for us, let's eat. Even though a storm may be raging outside, he prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Think of what we call the Last Supper. For Jesus. You talk about spreading a table in the presence of your enemies. Paul described it this way, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, 23, the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord de Lord's death until he comes. How, how could Jesus do that? On the night he was betrayed, could we do that? I mean, just think, if you knew, if you, if you knew today that tonight, here's what was waiting for you tonight. One of your best friends was going to betray you. You were going to be arrested and then convicted in a kangaroo court and then beaten and whipped and crucified on a cross for six hours tomorrow and die. How much of an appetite would you have at lunch today? Me neither. How did Jesus do that? Well, he was special for sure. But part of it has to be that the other thing Jesus knew, Jesus knew what was coming, but he also knew what he inspired the psalmist to write, that you will not abandon your Holy One to the grave to experience decay. He knew that God was going to resurrect him from that grave. He also knew that through that series of events, God was providing... We're talking about the providence of God. God was providing what all of his children need, and that is a savior. And when Jesus died, the Bible says he conquered death. Death died. So we have 
a weekly feast that we partake of. It's not a feast in the sense that it's a lot of food. It's a feast in the sense of the significance of the emblems of which we partake. We call it the Lord's Supper. And it's as if we, when we sit together and we partake of this feast, we're saying to each other, death has died. We get to live. Let's eat. I want to read you one more quote. Brian Gregory writes, Celebrating Purim today means rejoicing that Christ has come and that evil has been dealt its decisive death blow. It means living with joy that the victory is already accomplished and will soon become a concrete reality in this world. It means that while we do not minimize evil or trivialize suffering, we nevertheless have a sense of lightheartedness, maybe even playfulness in this life. One way to put it is that Purim reminds us that we should take Christ and the good news of salvation so seriously, we don't have to take ourselves too seriously. We should be so overwhelmed by the good news that Christ has come, that Christ reigns, and that Christ is coming again, that we're able to hold our own lives with a looser grip than we often do. We should be so encouraged by the good news that God's providential plans are unfolding every day in our lives and in our world that we can be a little more lighthearted about the ups and downs that we face on a daily basis. The spirit of Purim ought to be alive and well today in the hearts of Christians with all its joy, its delight, sometimes even fun.